Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series, the number one podcast for brain injury and concussion resources. I am Amy Zellmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I will be chatting with Zoe McLean on tips from an occupational therapist. This episode is brought to you by Integrated Brain Centers. Located in Denver, Colorado, Drs. Shane Stedman and Perry Maynard are experts in functional neurology and treat complex concussion cases from around the country. With over 20 years of combined experience, They are leaders in helping patients who are suffering from post-concussion symptoms, including dizziness, vertigo, headaches, dysautonomia, and more. For your free consultation, you can find them online at integratedbraincenters.com. Hello, I am Amy Zellmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury one podcast at a time. Those of you who might not know who I am, I am a TBI survivor on a, from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I am a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Good Men Project, and author of Life with a Traumatic Brain Injury, Finding the Road Back to Normal, which is available on Amazon. And additionally, I'm editor-in-chief of the Brain Health Magazine. You can get your free digital subscription at thebrainhealthmagazine.com. You can learn more about the podcast at facesoftbi.com, and you can connect with me on Instagram at Amy Zellmer. I also invite you to join my private Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, to connect with other survivors, caregivers, and loved ones. Today, my guest is Zoe McLean. She is an occupational therapist at Northeast Rehabilitation Hospital, an inpatient acute rehabilitation hospital with four locations in New Hampshire. Zoe has achieved significant specialty milestones as a certified stroke rehabilitation specialist and certified brain injury specialist. She works with adults who've experienced life-changing health events, such as a stroke or brain injury. She's an active member of the Brain Injury Core Team and a field work educator. She mentors clinical staff members across all disciplines and takes an active role in helping each patient achieve functional milestones and accomplish their goals, while also advocating for essential resources to support their continued rehab journey. Zoe is a leader in the area of behavior management and has presented on the topic at local conferences. She is also the New Hampshire Think First State Chapter Director, where she focuses on educating youth about brain injury and brain injury prevention. Welcome to the podcast, Zoe. I'm so happy to have you here. Amy, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, Well, Zoe, I love to just always start by asking my guests, you know, how did you come to work specifically in the brain injury realm? What was, what was your path here? Um, so I, was, I, I figured you were going to ask me something like that, and I got myself thinking, and I said, how did I get so lucky to actually get into the situation where I am? Um, so years ago, I was in, obviously, college trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to do. 
Um, at that point, I was a gymnast, and I had met with, you know, many different physical therapists, athletic trainers, and I realized, like, how beneficial it was for them to help me solely on a physical disability, like an injury, um, and how rewarding they must have felt. And I had the opportunity at that point to start um, volunteering within our college setting and helping others with, um, like, developmental disabilities. And I um, loved how rewarding, in general, occupational therapy could be. Um, from there, I started, you know, our internships where I was in a school for multiple disabilities, individuals who actually um, had, you know, cerebral palsy or a brain injury at a young age, and then was placed at a Northeast rehab in a different location where I was on a brain injury and stroke unit. And at that point, I absolutely fell in love with just in general the neurological population. Um, it was the fact that um, I felt like you don't always see what is specifically going wrong or a person mm -hmm. is having trouble with. And once you kind of dig into mm -hmm. starting to help them, it opens up this whole area of um, possibilities where you can help someone just improve on all aspects of their life. That's really how I got yeah, to I where I am that. now. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So, Zoe, I think maybe it would be helpful um, to even have you define what is an occupational therapist. Um, I think, in general, most people know, like, a PT, right, physical therapist, um, but maybe not right. everybody has encountered an OT. Um, so maybe give us just a brief overview of, like, what does an occupational therapist do? Yes. Um, so when I think of occupational therapy, when I walk into a room and start explaining, hi, I'm your occupational therapist, the first reaction I think people typically think is, I already have an occupation. I already have a job. <laughs> And I have to think uh, and explain yes, to yes. them, yeah, that an occupational therapist looks at activities of daily living. So every single job or task that makes up your whole occupation of being who you are. Um, so I think of an occupational therapist as restoring any sort of daily living tasks. Um, we work together with our patients to restore um, their cognitive abilities, um, their sensory abilities, um, integrate people back into what they were doing beforehand. So it could be, in, you know, in getting reintegrated into school systems, back into work, um, being able to bathe yourself, dress yourself, toilet yourself, all the things that make up who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. I know um, my mom broke her hip. Uh, I think it's been three years now. It was in 2020. Um, and I remember we had an occupational therapist come into our home to help set us up with um, the, uh, oh, what do you call that, the shower transfer um, so that right. she could get into the shower safely and then, um, like, the elevated toilet seat thing so that she could get up and off the toilet. Um, so, again, yep. just, like, your everyday task that you do throughout the day. Um, exactly. I never had I thought about that. And I, I can absolutely see a brain injured person saying I already have an occupation. So right. that was yep. great. I never heard that before. <laughs> right. I even think of where you referred to your mom as breaking her hip. Um, you know, when you see someone who's broken their hip, you can kind of look forward and assume 
how they're going to progress. They have hip precautions. They're not to bend forward. There's certain standards that you follow for something mm-hmm. like a broken bone. Yes. When you think of somebody who's um, sustained a brain injury, there's no way to assume what is about to happen or assume to yes. say that this person is going to heal in this way versus another person. Or in a certain amount of time. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. All right. So let's jump into some of these tips that you have for us today. Um, Where would you like to start? Um, I think of, like, maybe even just treatment planning or, like, how to treat an individual as a whole. Um, I find occupational therapy being different than other disciplines in the way that I think that we look at things as a whole picture. So who the person is, um, we, you know, go ahead and evaluate the person. Um, We do a good job of interviewing, like, what what are their values? What are their beliefs? Who are they as a person before their injury? And then taking the time to um, observe the patient in their everyday tasks, attempting, um, you know, to get out of bed, um, to stand up and walk, to make themselves a meal, and while the person is demonstrating what we're doing, what they're doing, um, an occupational in general should be looking at their activity and um, doing an activity analysis. So I think what makes occupational therapy different than other disciplines and what I find it most rewarding is that we have the ability to break down a task, something like, you know, making their bed. I'm going to observe them doing mm-hmm. it, and I'm going to have the ability to break down every single step of it. How are they doing with leaning forward? Are they sequencing the events correctly? Are they reaching with both of their hands? Is their vision able to scan the entire bed? Um, and I think that is by far the most important thing to then take what I observed and accurately um, plan appropriate treatment plans that are individualized to my patient or my client. So, Zoe, let's back up a minute, because um, when you started talking about making the bed, it just made me think, like, at what point does an OT typically start working with a brain injury patient? So, um, I think it's different in every single setting that you're working in. For me specifically, I'm pretty early <clears throat> on um, the level of care. So, a patient is typically brought to an acute care hospital. Um, and as soon as they are considered more or less medically stable, if they are capable of going home, wonderful, but if they're not capable of going home, they typically transition to an acute rehab hospital. So when you think of severity of brain injury, I think that we are seeing the more severe um, accidents, and at a place like Northeast Rehab, I am typically meeting that patient the next morning that they are there. Um, the patients yeah. that I see are inpatient, so they will be with us um, 24 hours a day, and we see them for three hours over the course of five days, uh, well, three hours, five days a week. So oh. I'm in, okay. in there and meeting them quickly. Yeah, yeah, and you're doing a lot of work with them, three hours Correct. per day. Yeah. Yep, okay. and that is, oh, yep. All right, well, let's jump back into your tips. I, I just wanted to go back to that before I forgot to ask that question. All right, so let's go back into your uh, tips. What, what's your next one for us? 
Um, I think of advocacy as very important. So a patient mm-hmm. or family mm-hmm. member um, who is able to be present throughout treatment sessions, um, meaning like can the patient themselves have the insight into their deficits to advocate for themselves. And if that is the case, that's wonderful. If it is not the case, um, integrating family members or friends that can help advocate for that person. Um, And what that can look like is um, carrying out home exercise programs on off hours, on off days that they're not receiving therapy, Um, educating themselves or others on the specific deficits that that patient may be having. Um, For example, are they demonstrating changes with their vision? Um, Are they having cognitive changes? Is there a way um, that is more effective to communicate with the person? And I think that when somebody is lacking that level of insight for themselves or that level of cognition to carry out what is best for them, it is important to rely on others when it's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, advocacy is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially, I think it's, you um, know, go ahead. Um, I was just, as most of our treatment sessions, I feel like we're including family members, friends, leaving notes in the in the room to help the continuum of care throughout all hours of the day. So the more I can provide education on what somebody needs, I find the better um, their treatments or their progress progresses. Mm. Yeah. You know, my um, good friend, her grandmother had dementia, and so she had an in-home. Someone came and sat with her for, like, five hours a day. Um, Mm -hmm. And they had a notebook in which... They wrote lot, They wrote down, like, cute things, like what she ate today, what she did, if she put a puzzle together. Uh, but then they also wrote down, like, you know, just any observations they made about her mood or her appearance. Um, and that was so that, because it wasn't the same aid every single day. And it was to keep that continuum of care so the aide the next day could read it and know. Um, so they all kind of knew they were on the same page. Um, so I think that's really important. And I think... I mean, I see this get lost in our traditional healthcare system. You go to your GP, right. you go to a neurologist, you go to maybe your PT, and they don't all necessarily communicate with each other. And I think, um, yep. I, I, yeah, and, and there's just this huge breakdown in treatment, in my opinion. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think when there is a breakdown in communication, um, the patient lacks um everything that they need. Um, So you made a point about a caregiver would write down specific behaviors. At Northeast Rehab, I feel like we do a great job of, um, you know, remaining consistent with somebody who is having um, different behavioral changes um, and being able to communicate between one staff member to another on what works or what doesn't work. so if, you know, you walk into a room and you notice somebody was agitated overnight, they had didn't, didn't have a great night's sleep, the way that I present myself as a clinician may be different than if I had known they had a great night's sleep. The patient was wide awake and ready for me mm-hmm. to come in. And it just kind of sets up the next step. I don't want their behaviors to escalate based off of something that I am doing as a clinician. 
you use your you know therapeutic use of self along with that effective communication um, to set up the day effectively for them to succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. All right, uh, what's your next tip? I don't know how many you have. <laughs> I have a few. I can keep going. Okay, good. Um, good. Vision. I feel like vision is one of those aspects. Um, that occupational therapy owns um, a big part of, as well as um, working, you know, with the interdisciplinary team. Um, I find that vision many times is something that, you know, it's a symptom someone is reporting. I can't see unless their eyes are misaligned um, to, like, the just looking at the person, what they are seeing. Um, so I find many times visual deficits are overseen or not accurately um, addressed in a timely manner. And when this happens, um, a patient can present with dizziness. They can present with um, looking like they're not um, motivated because everything that we are doing revolves around our vision. Um, some things that we have done recently at the hospital that I find extremely beneficial are the idea of um, visual fatigue. So visual fatigue is something that you have to take in consideration that your eyes are constantly filtering just light. If you're sleeping, it's filtering light. Um, You know, everything you do, your eyes are working just to filter the light in and out. And um, taking rest breaks with your eyes, you know, covering them up to reduce that amount of visual stress that they're under helps um, our visual system to work more appropriately when it needs to. Um, We've had a lot of benefits with even just sunglasses, visors, different colored lenses, um, just to allow your eyes to relax a little so that when they need to work, they're working more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the, the eye stuff, I would say the vast majority of uh, folks with brain injury uh, suffer some some sort of vision um, disturbance. And, like, for me, I couldn't quite put a, 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 a word to it. I just knew something was wrong with my eyes. And it mm-hmm. turned out they weren't tracking together. Um, so I think that that's great that that's one of the things you guys are really looking for because it, I think it gets, it gets overlooked so often. Um, Correct. In, in just again in the traditional healthcare system. Um, Zoe, one thing that came to mind when you were talking about the eye stuff, um, how how some patients get labeled non-compliant. Right. And it's not that they're necessarily being non-compliant. Like they're being non-compliant. They're not taking their meds. So they're not doing their PT, you know, exercises. Well, are they really non-compliant or can they, it's like, not remember? (laughs) That's definitely high on my list. You you just simply forget, like, that lapse of memory is just something I can't even explain. I know when I was going through it, I was so aware that my memory was impaired, but there was just nothing I could do to compensate for it. Um, So, do you have any thoughts or tips um, for people listening, especially like a caregiver listening who might think that right. their their loved one is non-compliant? 
I think, um, yes, non-compliance can look like many things. It can look like somebody is way too tired to participate. Um, it could be that their communication skills aren't effective enough to voice what is what they're feeling. Or it could be, you know, a behavioral issue. And when I think of behavioral issues, I, I think that that terminology gets labeled as something negative. Everything that we do in our day-to-day um, living is based off of a behavior. So is something leading up? Is there an antecedent to why the patient isn't taking their medication when they need to? Is there um, mm-hmm. something bothering them um, that they're not able to, to voice to us? So I think of our behavior plans in general as um, a, a lot of things come into observation. Why, are, why is the patient not wanting to get out of bed or participate in therapy? Is it because when they go down to the gym, the lights are too bright? And when they go down to the gym, it's so um, multisensory that the environment is overstimulating to them. Is it the call bell outside their door that just keeps going off? Um, so I think as a caregiver, it's it's interesting to start tracking when you're seeing is the patient or their loved one non-compliant at all hours, or is it specific times of the day? Um, you mentioned as far as the memory. I think that if somebody is having memory deficits, that it shouldn't be the responsibility solely of that individual to complete X, Y, and Z. There should be something in place, mm-hmm. like you said, um, that, that's compensating. Is it a verbal reminder? Is it a phone call from somebody? Is it that they're capable of following a calendar of events that have to take place? But I think going yeah. back to the basis, that activity analysis I started talking about in the beginning, um, if you're breaking down what are the tasks that need to be completed and at what part does it fall apart, it gives us as a clinician, the ability to then work on the parts that are falling apart. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so so important. I, I know for me that was a huge struggle in those first, gosh, the, the first six months were really, really hard for me with the memory, um, especially the, yeah. the short term, the working memory. Um, all all right. right, what is your next tip for us, Zoe? Um, let's see. So adaptive equipment. Um, I think occupational is like one of our superpowers, right, is we're, we're pretty creative <laughs> in looking at things differently. Um, so there is a time and a place, I think, for compensation strategies, and there's a time and a place to start remediating. Um, so where I am right in the acute phase of an injury, I think that I always start with I want to I want to restore somebody's abilities. Um, but when doing that, does it make the person frustrated um, because they're not able to complete the tasks that they want to? So I think of it as a fine line between we need to compensate and remediate, but also maintain our patients or our clients to be motivated to continue working with us. Um, I find assistive Technology, assisted devices, extremely helpful. Um, And I think that the environment that we are living in, right, so our our hospital rooms, our apartments, our houses, setting them up in a way that a patient can more likely succeed. If that means Mm -hmm. decluttering an area, um, you know, in the kitchen, somebody wants to be able to cook eggs again. Um, using timers so they don't forget that the water 
is boiling if they're doing hard-boiled eggs. Um, only putting the pots and pans out that they need so they're not getting confused which pot they're using. I think it very much has to do with um, adapting the environment and changing so that the person could be successful. You know, talking about cooking, I know um, that's a huge hurdle for a lot of folks because you have to follow directions, you have to do things in order, you have to do maybe two or three things at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. And so I had started doing HelloFresh. Um, my friend would have me come over once a week and he would make me make the meal. Um, and he was there to help me if I needed it. But um, it was a really good way to start getting that, like, muscle memory working again. And, and of course, there's a couple of times I ended up with an ingredient left over. I'm like, um, was this supposed to go in there? Right. <laughs> and I so wonder fine. at what point was it that, that you forgot to put it in there? When you think of cooking, you think right. of the amount of attention it takes to a task, right? So if you're yes. cooking alone, you have you know, good sustained attention. But if a friend is there with you, you're going to alternate between your sustained attention to the task and, you know, having a little bit of communication with your friend. So it's, it's interesting when we transition into more IADL tasks that um, we're looking at attention to complete one thing. And then we make the environment, you know, a little bit noisier, a little bit more distracting. And it's interesting yeah. to see someone did so well in a structured task and the more steps that go into it or the more distractions, it makes it much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that I know that was one of the that was one of the trainings I did at some point is I had to do a task with um it it, it was just a recording of like two small children talking and you know how they just say funny things and you know, like it, it was nothing in particular, but it was just distracting enough, right? And so that was teaching me how to kind of tune out that other noise to focus on my task. Um, and right. I remember that made a huge difference for me. Absolutely. All right. Do you got one more, Zoe? We have time for one more if you got one. Sure. Um, let's see. Let's make it something good. Um, mm -hmm. I think of the rancho levels. For occupational therapy. Um, as an occupational therapist in acute rehab, we have found it extremely helpful to kind of follow along with the patient and meet them where they are at. So when you think of the Rancho Los Amigos levels, they look at cognitive abilities and they rank a patient um, based off of where they are at. So if a patient has a lower Rancho level, I think of them as emerging almost from like a comatose stage. And it, it cues the occupational therapist or the clinician to know how to interact with that patient. Um, and it goes all the way up to when a patient is more independent, um, their mood is more stable, their cognitive abilities are more complex, and it helps us gear um, appropriate behaviors and make appropriate goals that meet the patient at their level. Um, the yeah. rancho levels also give us an indication of somebody's um, behaviors. So are they in a state where um, they're agitated or less insightful or more impulsive to someone who is more reasonable, uh, more empathetic, more um, have more insight into their deficits? Mm 
And I find yeah, and when I we use the, those levels, it's helpful. Yeah, and I think the Rancho score is something we don't hear about as much. Um, you know, I think everybody's pretty familiar with the Glasgow coma scale, right, if they were in a coma. Um, right. But the Rancho, um, is it Rancho Amigo? Yep, Los Amigos. another word in there? Los Amigos. Um, yes. You know, and so I think that's something that a lot of people don't hear about, and I don't even think it gets brought up a lot. Um, right. So do you want to maybe just talk a little bit on how it's calculated? Yeah, so um, let's see. There's We go by, um, we kind of group the first three together as um, that's when somebody is kind of not responding to us, not responding to our answers or a general response or a localized response. And based off of those, the first three levels, we as a clinician know that we should maintain, you know, a calm voice or a quiet environment to prevent any overstimulation. Um, so these are people who, um, you know, they might be opening their eyes. But once we start talking too much, they might be closing their eyes because it's just too much for them to process mm-hmm. at once. Um, we know mm-hmm. if we are going to ask a person at this stage a question, we need to give them increased time to respond, like upwards of you know 20 seconds before they're nodding yes or no to us. Um, when we get to levels four, I think of we can provide the the patient is, is still very confused, um, but they're emerging into less confused states. So we know that we have to maintain safety for this patient. They're not able to, um, you know, make decisions that are safe for themselves. Typically, mm-hmm. they're very distractible um, or restless or agitated. So we know we have to, you know, have a low voice or a positive attitude with them. Um, I think of ranchos, as, as we get higher, uh, a patient is less confused more insightful, that's when we can start using different um, assistive devices or adaptations to help with their cognition um, or orientation. We're going to orient them to the calendar, the day of the week, who we are as a person, who their family members are, um, and continue to provide repetition of that, where they're located, that they're safe, Um, And then as we get to levels six and seven, we start integrating this patient back into um, their normal routine again. So they're going to wake up every morning at the hospital. They're going to know who I am. Um, They're going to get washed and dressed and have breakfast and start following a specific routine. Um, And that goes all the way up to we're going to increase, you know, socialization, invite their visitors in more often, um, and start promoting more and more independence. And then at the higher levels, um, we generally start taking back our interventions. So we want the patient to be less structured, that we want them to start being more um, cognitively flexible, to be able to multitask, do more than one thing at once. Um, and that's the stage where a patient is most likely ready to transition home without supervision or without as many cues or assistance from caregivers. Um, like I said earlier, um, a patient, it's, it's not like every single patient transitions through these stages quickly or at, at the same time frame. So someone yeah. may stay within a 
confused level longer than another. Right. Yeah. There's no linear path. <laughs> Everybody is a little bit Mm-mm. different in their recovery. Yeah. I agree. Well, Zoe, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Do you just have any just final parting words for our listeners today? Mm, let's see. I think just advocating for, um, you know, you to have your care be personalized to yourself so that you're motivated to continue and that knowing as a caregiver that the recovery for brain injury is definitely um, different for each person and that there is a continuum of care. So um, going from the hospital, there should be someone else to carry out all the levels of care um, until a person has progressed. Mm. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And if anyone has any interest in learning more about uh, Northeast Rehab, we have a clickable link in the show notes. It's northeastrehab.com. So I thank you again, Zoe, so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Just another big thank you to our sponsor, Integrated Brain Centers. Get your free consultation at integratedbraincenters.com. And you can always find previous episodes on most streaming platforms, such as iTunes, or directly at facesoftbi.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at Amy Zellmer. And also join our Amy's TBI tribe on Facebook. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it for $5 a month with a Patreon membership, patreon.com slash Amy Zellmer. Thank you all so much for listening, and thank you for being a part of my journey. Have a great day, everyone, and I'll see you in the next episode.